Gospel of Luke and the chapter 5. The Gospel of Luke and the chapter 5. If I thought that wearing a mask this evening would stop my hay fever, I would wear three of them. But unfortunately, I don't believe it will help me. But Luke's Gospel, chapter 5. In this chapter, we have the story related to us of how a man is let through the roof. A man who's lame, brought by the man's friends, and Christ heals him. And the man who is lame is made to walk. Verse. It was another opportunity for people in the town to come along and to hear the gospel. And well, if they didn't come, well, that's their missed opportunity. Or maybe you're looking for a little bit more. Maybe you're hoping that somebody whom you have invited, your loved one perhaps, a brother, a sister, a friend, a loved one, a child, or maybe somebody else, somebody who you work with, somebody who is a neighbor, you've invited them, and you're hoping that they'll come out. I wonder why you hope they'll come out. Do you expect God will do anything in their hearts and in their lives? Maybe you think, you know what, well, I hope to get them there, but the reality is, if I'm honest with myself, I don't really expect God to do anything. Uh, they're maybe a bit too cold, they're maybe a bit too focused on the things of this earth, maybe a little bit too disinterested in the things of God. You know, they've heard the gospel for many years, and they've rejected Christ, and well, while I hope to get them out, and while I hope they'll be there, yet even though they hear the gospel, they don't really expect anything to happen. Don't expect God to change their lives, to transform them, to restore them, to do a work in their hearts and lives for His glory and honor. I wonder this evening, if you and I were to be honest with ourselves, is our faith low? Are we those who are despairing, already disappointed before the mission even comes? No, God can save. We know that. We know that in our heads, but we believe in our hearts that God can save. God can change, even those who are unlikely. Thinking about the upcoming mission, this evening I want to take a break from the series that we are doing in spiritual warfare. And I couldn't help but be struck at the example of Matthew. It's revealed in three gospel records, Matthew, Mark, and the gospel, Luke's gospel, about this man's conversion. And as I thought about it, I cannot help but think that it is an inspiration to hope. To hope in the power of God, that Jesus Christ is same yesterday, today, and forever, is one who is not only able, but is the one who's willing to save sinners. Willing and able to save sinners. And so I want to look at this passage this evening. We'll look at other accounts, Matthew and Mark perhaps, but I want to simply look at Matthew's conversion, an inspiration, the hope. And as we look at this conversion, I want really to note a number of things regarding our beloved Savior. The first is this, that Jesus Christ is powerful. Jesus Christ is powerful. I want to explain that from a number of perspectives. As we look at Matthew here, if you look at me please at verse 27 of Luke chapter 5, we read, And after these things he went forth and saw a publican named Levi, Levi here is another name that's given to Matthew. Sitting at the receipt of custom, 
And he that is Christ said unto him, Follow me. Now, the first thing I want you and I to note tonight is that Matthew is one who has no interest in Christ. And if you and I compare the gospel records, I personally would say that it is very unlikely that Matthew knows nothing about Christ. And it's very likely there, from the other hand, that Matthew knows something of Christ. If you turn to me, please, to Mark's gospel. Mark's gospel, chapter 2. If you look at verse 14 of Mark chapter 2, you and I will see about how Christ passed by and he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the receipt of custom. So we have the same passage here. It's a parallel passage. But if you note with me at what already has happened in the ministry of Christ, Mark chapter 1, in verses 23 to 27, Christ has already publicly, in his ministry, cast out a demon from a man on the Lord's day in a synagogue. The result of that miracle we find in verse 28 of Mark chapter 1. And immediately, his fame, the fame of Christ, spread abroad throughout all the region round about Galilee. Just one miracle. And the result was that the fame of Christ and the reputation of Christ spread abroad throughout all of Galilee. In verses 29 and 30 of Mark chapter 1, we read about how Christ will do a private miracle. He will heal the mother-in-law of Simon Peter. And what's the result? Verses 32 to 34. People from all over the area are gathering their loved ones to Christ for to heal them. Christ will spend all evening, all night, healing these people. And whenever comes the morning time, Christ wanting to spend time with His heavenly Father, He will have to go into a solitary place just to be alone with God. And in verse 35, what does Simon Peter say to Christ? Coming to Christ in verse 35 and verse 37, Peter says, quote, All men seek for thee. Christ's reputation, Christ's fame is continuing to blossom and to flourish. In verses 38 and 39 of Mark 1, Christ will preach in towns and synagogues throughout all Galilee. In verses 41 to 45, Christ will publicly heal a man with leprosy. Mark chapter 2, the first 12 verses. Christ being so popular in his ministry, he's in a house. People will fill that house. People will cram and surround that house just wanting to get a glimpse of this miracle worker, this wonderful man who's been sent from God. And then, of course, some friends bring their their lame friend, lay him down through the ceiling in the roof. Christ heals him, but Christ declares that he's God because he is part of forgive sins. And then, women, if one miracle was enough for the fame of Christ is spared throughout all of Galilee, how much more all these other miracles in addition to it? In Mark chapter 3, if you look with me there, only perhaps a few days or a week or two after the conversion of Matthew, in Mark chapter 3, verses 7 to 8, we read about how Christ withdrew himself with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Edomia, and from beyond Jordan. And they about Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude. Why? Because they knew, verse 10, that he'd heal many, insomuch that they pressed upon Christ for to touch him, as many as had plagues. What's this scene? Christ is one popular man. Christ is one sought-after man. Christ is one well-known man. And yet, what do we find in Mark chapter 2 and the verse 14? As Christ passes by, 
from one time to the next town. As people are running after Christ, seeking Christ, wanting to hear Christ, wanting to touch Christ, wanting Christ to touch them, wanting Christ to save their loved ones, what do we find Mark, Matthew doing? Mark 2.14. Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting to receive a custom. In Matthew's record, chapter 9, verse 9, what do we find? Matthew, sitting at the receipt of custom. Luke's Gospel, chapter 5, verse 27, what do we find? Matthew, a publican sitting at the receipt of custom. All three records emphasize Matthew sitting. He's not interested. Multitudes are running to learn about Christ. Multitudes are eager to hear what Christ has to say. Multitudes are looking for Christ to touch them. But not Matthew. Matthew's sitting. Matthew's not getting up. Matthew's not moving a foot forward. Oh, he could. He could have got somebody else to look after his work. He will do so. Because he's about to leave all and follow Christ and leave his work to somebody else. So he could have got up and followed after Christ. He could have went up and went to hear something of what Christ was saying and doing. But no, here, before his conversion, he's sitting. He has no interest in Christ. Zero interest in learning about Christ. Zero interest in hearing from Christ. Zero interest in being touched and changed by Christ. Very unlikely you would say that Levi or Matthew is ever going to be saved. Let me tell you this to encourage you. Matthew may not seek Christ, but Christ is seeking Matthew. And perhaps you have a loved one tonight. And maybe a bit like they're like Matthew. They have heard of Christ working the lives of others, they've heard of multitudes who have been saved by Christ, maybe in their family. Maybe in their neighborhood. Maybe in the church. They have heard of people being saved. They've heard of people being changed. They've heard of people being healed. Being transformed by the power of God. And while they know that others love Christ, they're desiring Christ, they're seeking after Christ, yet personally they have zero interest in Christ. Maybe your loved one tonight has zero interest in hearing about Christ. Zero interest in being changed by Christ. And you think, oh, what's, there's no hope no hope. I want to tell you this. Christ is powerful to save the completely disinterested. Because while they may not seek Christ, Christ can seek them. Christ came into this world to seek and to save who? The lost. The dead. The disinterested. Those who would not seek after Him. That's the ones to whom Christ came into this world to save. Matthew is one who has no interest in Christ. But I'll go further than that. Secondly, Matthew is one who, very likely in my opinion, has rejected Christ. Not merely has he heard of him, but I would put it to you that Matthew has actually rejected Christ. And there's two things I would believe determine this. The first is Matthew's knowledge. If you and I were to read through Matthew's Gospel this evening, you and I would find that time and time again Matthew will quote from the Old Testament. Matthew has a great knowledge of the Old Testament Scriptures. In fact, Matthew will quote the Old Testament Scriptures 100 times, the equivalent of almost four times every single chapter. He will quote from every part of the Old Testament. It's not just that he knows one book particularly well. No, he'll quote from the Psalms. He'll quote from the Law. He'll quote from the Prophets, the three major sections of the Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures. He'll quote from every part of them. And let me tell you something else. 
he will quote more from the Old Testament than Mark does and Luke does and John does. And more than that, he will quote more from the Old Testament than Mark, Luke, and John put together does. Matthew is a man who knows the Old Testament Scriptures. Now, it's possible that Matthew learned much of the Old Testament Scriptures after his conversion. But as many commentators would say, and personally I would be inclined to believe, is more likely that Matthew is one who grew up being taught the Old Testament Scriptures. As a child, he was taught them. As a teenager, he was taught them. And perhaps as a young man, he was taught them. In the morning time, he was taught them. In the evening time, he was taught them. In his school work, in his homework, in his work that he did with his family. Maybe his mom, maybe his dad, maybe his wider family circle taught Matthew again and again of the Messiah to come. Because Matthew knows the Old Testament. He knows about the Messiah because again and again, this gospel record, he will go back to what he's been taught, to what he knows. And he'll be able to point out that Messiah fills that prophecy and that prophecy and that prophecy 100 times over. He's a man, in my opinion, he's been brought up and taught the things of God. And yet, Matthew rejects all that he's been taught of the Messiah. He spurns it. He neglects it. He's got no time for it because Matthew, as we find him here sitting at the receipt of custom in Mark 2.14 or Luke 5.27 or Matthew 9.9, Matthew has no time for the truth of God. No time for the Scriptures. He's turned his back on Judaism. He's turned his back on the people of God and the Word of God and the law of God and the worship of God. And we say, well, how do I know that? Well, very simply this. Because he's a publican. He's a tax collector. I am told that a person who became a publican had to resign any membership that they would ever hold in the synagogue. And the reason was very simple. Whenever Rome conquered Israel, Rome would tax Israel, as of course it would do its various regions. Nothing wrong with this in and of itself. Christ himself would teach, give to Caesar, rend on to Caesar, that which is Caesar's. Nothing wrong with that in and of itself. But the problem is this. Whenever Rome was going to tax a certain region, they didn't want to get in the nitty-gritty of actually doing it themselves. There was no central taxation system like you and I have, the HMRC. No, Rome would have put it out to tender. To wealthy individuals, you come and tell me how much money you're going to get for this particular region. And whenever they were happy with a certain deal with a wealthy individual, they'd say to that individual, right, you get us that money, and that's fine. You can do whatever you want yourself. And so the wealthy individual then go hire chief publicans, a number of them. And the chief publicans would have to go out and graze the money. And they, from what we will learn from Zacchaeus, who was a chief publican, would raise not just, say, for example, the wealthy individual had to get 100 grand from a certain region. The chief publican would not just raise 100 grand. He would be raising extra for the wealthy individual, and he would be raising extra for himself. In the case, whenever he was converted, he would repay up to fourfold times what he ever took because he charged people more than he ever should have. Zacchaeus and others, chief publicans, they could have been getting maybe 300 grand up to 400 grand in tax from the people. Ripping them off, charging them, basically stealing from them. But the chief publican did that. But they would have hired little publicans like Matthew to go out and to tax the people. No doubt they were getting a profit as well because Christ will tell them in Luke chapter 3 not to do that. And you see, the publicans, chief or just a normal publican like Matthew, they were known for corruption. This whole corrupt system for ripping people off, stealing of those young, stealing of those that are old, being deceitful, bribing people, lying, 
That was the system of the taxation in the Roman world. And anybody who went into it, not merely were they corrupt and deceitful and lying, but they were going against the people. They're going against their community, going against their nation, not supporting their people, not supporting their neighbors. They were ripping them off and stealing from them. They were, the publicans were despised. They were hated. And that's why no publican could ever be in membership of a local synagogue. And Matthew choosing this career, even though, from my opinion, he was brought up in a godly home, taught the Scriptures in the Old Testament, but he turned his back on all that truth turned his back on the people of God, turned his back on the law of God, turned his back on the Messiah that had been promised from God, rejected the worship of God, all to go into this career of a publican. And here we find him in Mark chapter 2 and Luke chapter 5, sitting at their feet of custom, doing his work. And yet Christ is going to save him. Christ is going to change this man. He had turned his back on God, turned his back on all he'd ever been told. Praise God, God is powerful to save those who have turned their back on Him. But I want to go a little bit further because I would say that Matthew has rejected Christ, not merely because of the knowledge that we see from the gospel record that Matthew has, but also because of Matthew's connections. If you look at me, please, at Mark chapter 2 and the verse 14. Now, I need you to listen very closely to this because there's a, some people are very good at knowing who belongs to who, and who is married to who, and who's a cousin of who, and perhaps some of you tonight are really, really good with that. Well, if you're like me, sometimes you can struggle with your own family, not to mention other people's families. Well, in Mark chapter 2, you and I write fine in verse 14, that this man Levi, this man Matthew, was the son of Alphaeus. Alphaeus. So he's the son of Alphaeus. Now, in Mark chapter 3, in the verses 14 and 19, we will find the names of the twelve apostles. In verse 15, for example, we have James and John, the sons, sorry, verse 17, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. However, in verse 18, we read of another James. He's not the son of Zebedee, but the son of Alphaeus. Now, why is he called the son of Alphaeus? Remember, Matthew is also in verse 18, and he's not called the son of Alphaeus. Well, one very simple answer would be that James needs to be distinguished from the other James. There's only one Matthew, but there's two Jameses. So one's James, the son of Zebedee, the other's James, the son of Alphaeus. Now, this name Alphaeus is only ever found five times in the, in the entirety of Scripture. Four times James is called the son of Alphaeus to distinguish him from the other James. And the other time is Matthew when he's called the son of Alphaeus. A natural inclination, therefore, is that they were brothers, both the sons of Alphaeus. Now, if, and I say if, but if that was the case, there's some things we do know for definite. James, the son of Alphaeus, has other brothers. For example, in Luke chapter 6, in the verse 16, if you want to turn there, Luke chapter 6, in the verse 16, you now will read about this James, the son of Alphaeus, in verse 15. And we read in verse 16 that about Judas, another one of the apostles, not Judas the Iscariot, but Judas, the other Judas, he was the brother of James. In Matthew 27, verse 56, we read that this James, the son of Alphaeus, has another brother called Joseph, another shortened version of Joseph, who would later be, is also called Persabus. And whenever 
You will recall after Judas Iscariot betrayed Christ, hung himself in Acts chapter 1, they were looking for a replacement for Judas Iscariot, and they put up two people, a man called Matthias, nothing to do with Matthew, by the way, but a man called Matthias and another man called Joseph, also known as Bersabbas. Whenever you tie the holes together, it's very likely that Matthew is a brother of James, and he's also the brother of Judas, also known as Thaddeus, and he's also the brother of this other man called Joseph, who was later put up to be a potential apostle. Three brothers would end up being apostles together. Now, you can go a little bit further than this, because there's more we know about James. In John chapter 19, 25, 25 we find that Christ, and everybody's on the cross, that there was a number of people there at the cross. There was Mary, of course, the mother of Christ, but there was also Mary's sister, or sister-in-law. She was present, and she's described there as Mary, the wife of Cleophas. Now, in Matthew 27, 56, we find that the mother of James and Joseph were present. And in Mark 15, 40, we read that the mother of James and Joseph is called Mary. And you tie these things together, and you have at the cross Mary, the mother of Christ, but you also have Mary's sister. And we have Mary, who's the mother of James and John. And we find the mother of James and John is called Mary, who is Mary, the wife of Cleophas, and the wife of Cleophas is the sister-in-law of Mary. And you tie it all together. And if all the links work out, I say we can't be dogmatic on it, but if all the links work out, and there's every good reason why they would, John Gill and other commentators would say that they, are, they do work out, that means that Matthew and James and Joseph and Judas, also known as Thaddeus, that they were the cousins, legally speaking, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Their uncle was Joseph, the legal guardian of Christ. And what does that mean? If that is the case, whenever Matthew was growing up, little Matthew, it's very likely that he would have a Jesus Christ in his home. He would have a Jesus Christ at his dinner table. He would have a Jesus Christ at some stage in his life personally speak to him. At some stage in Matthew's life, he would have had Jesus Christ reveal his purity, his uniqueness, his claims. But yet Matthew wanted nothing to do with Christ. No interest in Christ and rejected Christ. Let me ask you tonight, have you got a loved one that you would love to see saved at this mission, but yet you think, you know, they've been brought up with the gospel you know, maybe, maybe it's a, a sibling. Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's somebody else. You know, maybe it's a parent. You know, they've been brought up with the gospel. They were brought up in the same home as I was brought up in. Or maybe it's a friend, and they were brought up in a Christian home. And it's like, you know, well, they were brought up in a similar situation to me. Their mother, their father, they taught them the gospel. They have seen the claims of Christ in the gospel. In the morning time, in the evening time, in their school, in their home. Whenever they spend time with their family, they've seen the claims of Christ, they've seen the power of Christ, they've seen the work of Christ, and yet they've rejected it all. There's no way God would ever speak to them again. There's no way Christ would ever show mercy to them again. I want to tell you, there's hope. Hope in Christ who's powerful even to speak to those who've rejected in the past. People who have turned their back on Christ, turned their back on the people of Christ, and the law of Christ, and the worship of Christ. 
power in Christ to save them, even them. They may have rejected Christ, but Christ has not yet rejected them. I want to encourage you tonight, there is hope. Matthew's conversion is an illustration of hope, of what Christ, who is powerful, and what he's able and what he's willing to do, to save those who are disinterested, to save those who have rejected him. But more than that, Matthew is one who is disinterested in Christ. Matthew is one who very likely has rejected Christ. But also Matthew is one who is so focused on the things of earth and of time. If you look at me, please, at Mark 2, in the verse 14, we read of Levi, Matthew, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the receipt of custom. Go back to this idea of Matthew being a publican, as he describes himself in Matthew 9, verse 9. Why would Matthew be willing to make himself a social outcast? Why would Matthew be willing to be hated by those in his community? Why would Matthew be willing to go against those them off? Why would Matthew be one who would be willing to be put in the same category and have the same reputation as publicans and sinners, harlots, the lowest of the low? Why would Matthew be willing for all of that? Why would he be willing to never be a member of the synagogue? Why? Very simple, isn't it? Because he's focused on the things of time. He's focused on money. He's focused on wealth. He's focused on possessions. As you can appreciate, the way the Roman system worked, tendering it out to wealthy individuals. Who's going to get us the money? Who's going to be most reliable in getting us the money? The wealthy individuals tended it out to the chief publicans. Who's going to be most faithful to me and get me the most money? The chief publicans tendered out to publicans in the area. Who's going to get it out to me? Who's going to get me the most money? And then who's going to be in the best positions in the main streets? Who's going to get into Capernaum here where Matthew was? Who's going to be there in the main street sitting at the receipt of custom, a seat of custom is one that's raised so that he can see everybody around and that he can be seen by everybody around. Who's going to get that seat in the busy fishing trade of Capernaum? Matthew gets it. You can imagine it being a dog-eat-dog world. And yet Matthew here, focusing on his career, focusing on his position, focusing on climbing up the ladder of the taxation system, getting a publican, hoping one day to be a cheap publican. There he is, doing all he can deceiving all he can, working all he can, just to get up, to get his money, to get his wealth, to get his possessions, to get his position. Doesn't matter if everybody hates him. Doesn't matter if people want to spit on him, as long as he gets his possessions and gets his money. And yet this man who is so focused on the things of time, who's so focused on the things of earth, Jesus Christ will step in and will transform that man and will change that man and praise God will do it in the blink of an eye. That is the power of Christ. I encourage you to invite loved ones, invite neighbors to this mission. And as you do so, have hope in the power of Christ. You may think they have no interest in the gospel, zero interest. You may think that they're so focused with their career, so focused with their work, so focused with their family, so focused with whatever it may be on this earth. And God will never do anything with them. I want to tell you, Jesus Christ stepped into Matthew's life and he changed him in the blink of an eye. Matthew, fourth, he was a man who was stubborn. Just like the prodigal son in Luke 16, just like the 
words found in Hebrews 11.25, I've no doubt that Matthew, as he turned his back on his family, turned his back on his community, turned his back on all he was taught in the Old Testament, turned his back on all he knew regarding God, and he went for his possessions, and he went for his wealth. I have no doubt that just like the prodigal son, just like what Moses found out, that the pleasure of sin lasts only for a little season. And I have no doubt that he was miserable. I have no doubt that he sought this pleasure and that pleasure, and it was still miserable. He got a bigger house, and he was still miserable. He got more gold, and he was still miserable. He got up a little position. He was still miserable. He got that chief seat of custom there on the main street of Capernaum, but he was still miserable. He got greater influence, but he was still miserable. He had power over people telling them what they must give him, what they were able to keep themselves, but he was still miserable. And he couldn't change it. And I have no doubt that Matthew was a man of bondage. Bondage to his own flesh and his own sin. But yet, praise God, Christ with his power was able to free him. Christ who made the elephants, Christ who made the mountains, Christ who made the earth, Christ who made the billions of stars, the millions of galaxies, the entire universe. Christ who has power for all those things has power to change little matter. Sitting there to see the custom. Why? Because the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Can I ask you tonight, do you have a loved one? Maybe they're focused on the things of time like Matthew is. Focused on their career, focused on their family, focused with their work, focused with their hobbies, focused with their possessions, focused on what they can get. I want to tell you, Christ can change them. Is your loved one in bondage? You know as you look at them, they're miserable. You know as you look at them that they're just putting on a facade, they're just putting on a smiling face. You know that by looking at them. As they try more and more different things to try and fill the void in their heart and life. You know they're in bondage to their own will. I want to encourage you, Christ can change them. Because the first lesson we learn tonight that Christ is powerful. It does not matter how disinterested their loved ones are. It does not matter how many times their loved ones have rejected Christ. It does not matter how deep in bondage and sin they may be. This man did not seek Christ. Christ sought him. This man did not, this man did not get his eyes on Christ. Christ got his eyes on him. This man did not get up on his feet and rise up and walk after Christ. Christ walked after him. And seeing him, speaking to him, changing him, Christ saved him. And he did it in the blink of an eye. Why did Christ do it? Well, I would just put it to you as a suggestion tonight that it's very interesting whenever you look at Mark's account, Matthew's account, Luke's account, this account of the conversion of Matthew is hemmed as, as a sandwich. Before it, you have what? You have friends bring their loved one to Christ. The loved one was lame. He couldn't get to Christ. But the loved ones brought them, the man, to Christ. On all three accounts, the beginning of Matthew's conversion, you have people bringing their loved one who would not and could not get to Christ. They brought the loved one to Christ. And what do you have afterwards? You have Matthew being saved and doing what? Going and getting his loved ones, his friends, his colleagues, and getting them before Christ. Why did Christ step in and save Matthew? From a human perspective, I put it to you that it's hemmed in in this context for a very particular reason. To highlight to you and I that there was somebody 
who, was, who loved Matthew, who was praying for Matthew, who was praying that God would step into Matthew's life, whether it be Alpheus, whether it be his mother Mary, whether it be his brother or his mother Mary or his brother James or his brother Joseph, I don't know. But I would put it to you that there's somebody here praying for Matthew. Don't give up, dear child of God. If you've seen your loved one reject Christ and be cold towards Christ and have had no interest in Christ, don't give up. Christ is powerful to save such people. Notice me secondly tonight, and just very quickly, Christ is not only powerful, but Christ is simple. He's simple. Look at me, please, at Luke's Gospel, chapter 5. Luke's Gospel, chapter 5, and verse 27. And after these things, he, as Christ, went forth and saw a publican. See, Christ set his eyes on Matthew long before Matthew ever set his eyes on Christ. And saw a publican named Levi sitting at the receipt of custom, and he that is Christ said unto him, Follow me. <coughs> Follow me. Did Christ, how did Christ change this man? Did he give him a hundred lectures in systematic theology? Did he explain to this man the ex- ten reasons for the existence of God, the ontological argument, the teleological argument, the cosmological argument? Did he spend hours befriending this man? Did he try and bribe this man with gifts, the promise of health and wealth? Did he use music and entertainment to change this man? Did he use gimmicks to try and change this man, Matthew? No. Christ just spoke to him. And he commanded him. He com- this is not a guidance. This is not a piece of advice. It's not a suggestion. Christ commanded Matthew, follow me. word for follow is the word akaluthio. And while sometimes you and I would get the impression of a shepherd and the sheep will follow behind the distance, this word for follow is often used in various contexts, New Testament, to come alongside me, alongside me, join my company, spend time in my presence. Follow me now, not tomorrow. Follow me closely, spend time with me, talk with me, listen to me. If I go to the left, you go to the left, I go to the right, you go to the right, I go up a hill and lead you up that way, you go up the hill, I lead you in the valley, you follow me into the valley. You follow me in all things, even if you don't understand where I'm going, you follow me. You follow me at all times, the morning and the noon and the night. You follow me and you keep following me. You follow me and you follow me alone. Basically, Matthew, I want you to trust me. I want you to love me. And I want you to surrender your all to me. Your will to my will. And just follow me. And what do we find? Verse 28. He that is Levi left all, rose up, and followed him. Just some very brief applications. The first is this, dear child of God, don't lose hope. You and I may be powerless to save our loved ones and to save sinners, but we are not hopeless. Because while we cannot save a sinner or change a sinner, Christ can save sinners and Christ can change sinners. There is power in the Word of God. The Word of God. God spoke on the earth was created. God spoke and the winds and the waves ceased. God spoke and Lazarus was raised to life. God spoke and things were done. The power is in the Word of God. Not in gimmicks. Not in entertainment. Not in newfangled programs and procedures. 
not in philosophy, not in modern so-called preaching, whereby people believe that man deep down is able to change himself. The power is found in the Word of God. It is the power of God, Romans 1.16, unto salvation. It alone is the power of God. Not only should you and I have hope, that's one application. The other application is we should be focused. Be focused. Whenever it comes to your lives, whenever it comes to church services, every aspect of our lives and every aspect of church service must be that which reveals Christ and His Word and His truth. If any part of a church service comes and it's not revealing Christ and it's not speaking of Christ, whether it be in what we sing, what we pray, in what we preach, in what we read, in anything that we do, we are actually hindering people from seeing Christ. We're hindering people from hearing His Word because it's the Word alone that is power. And all that we do, and must just let the Word go freely, Paul said, with free course, that it will be magnified in the sight of people because the power is in the Word. Let's have hope in the Word. Let's keep focused and not go into distractions. Christ is powerful. Christ is simple. It's the Word. But notice thirdly, Christ is thorough. Look at me, please, at Luke chapter 5 again. Verse 27 to 28. After these things he went forth and saw a publican named Levi sitting at their seat of custom. And he said unto him, Follow me. And he left all rose up and followed him. Whenever God sees a person, he doesn't just change a little bit. It's not like he gets a bit of wood and whittles a wee bit off the wood or takes a wee bit of a rough edge off the corner. Christ receives a person. He changes a person. Matthew's mind, we find here, is made new. He is a new creation. All things become new in the life of Matthew. His mind is new. Because what do we find? Before we find, he has no interest in Christ. No desire for Christ. He doesn't see anything in Christ that would make him even get up off his bum and search for Christ. He sees nothing in his mind to see that Christ is beautiful. But now his mind's changed. Why do we know that? Because he gets up. He gets up. He rises up. His mind has changed. He hears something. He sees something. Not only has his mind changed, his heart's changed. Because in verse 28 of Luke 5, he really left all. What's the all? He left his workplace. He left his career. He left his security. He left his passion. He left all that he had trained himself to be and to do. He left all that he knew. He left it all. You see, before Matthew's conversion, his life was all about this. It was all about himself. His life was nothing about Christ. Just about himself. Didn't care about the worship of God or the people of God or the law of God or anything like that. Just it was all about himself. What would make him happy? But now it's different. What's his one heart? Just leave it all behind. Leave it all behind. Follow Christ. You see, whenever Christ sees a person, and dear child of God, whenever it comes to our loved ones, comes to a Sunday night, week by week, comes to this mission coming up, Christ, if he's going to save somebody, he will save them thoroughly. A new mind to see the beauty of Christ. A new heart 
to leave all, but a new will. Thirdly, a new will. Because we read verse 28, he followed. He followed. What was Christ's command? Follow me now. Follow me now and always. Follow me at all times, in high and low, in left and right. Follow me in all things. Follow me closely. Be with me. Love my company. Enjoy my company. Love spending time with me, talking with me, hearing from me. Follow me and nobody else. Trust me. Love me. Surrender your will to me. That's what the command was. We read that he arose and he followed. I've no doubt that Matthew failed at times. But I also have no doubt that Matthew, seeing his failure, he got up again. He rose up again and he followed Christ again. I've no doubt of it. Perhaps you have a loved one and they're already saved. You know that. But yet they've fallen to the wayside. I want to tell you Christ is able to work in that loved one's heart and get them to rise up again and follow Christ again. Walk beside Christ again. Listen to the voice of Christ and his word and the Lord's Day services again. Talk with Christ. Enjoy prayer again. Because whenever Christ saves somebody, he saves them thoroughly. A new mind, a new heart, with new desires and a new will, a new inclination. Church history records Matthew died by being burned at the stake. Whenever persecution would come and others would recant, Matthew didn't. He followed Christ and he walked with Christ to the very end. To the very end. Let me just conclude tonight and just say that Christ is wondrous. He's powerful. He's simple. He is thorough, but he's wondrous. Because you and I find in the following verses, 29 through to 32, that Levi made him a great feast in his own house. And there was a great company of publicans and others that sat down with them. But their scribes and Pharisees murmured against the disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with publicans and sinners? And Jesus answering said unto them, They that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. He came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Christ saving this one man, Christ would use that one man. Christ would use him in the short term and then the long term. In the short term, Christ would use him, first of all, that this man would open up his house, invite his friends and his, his colleagues, all come in because I want you to see Christ, the one who has saved me. You see all the people that looked down upon Christ, that looked down upon Matthew. You see the Jewish people that looked down upon him for becoming a publican. In the long term, Christ would use Matthew to write Matthew's gospel. Who was it primarily directed to? The Jewish people. You see, those hundred Old Testament references, what was that for? To show the Hebrew people. The people despised Matthew and had no doubt perhaps wanted to spit on Matthew. Christ would use Matthew to reach not merely the rejected and the lowly in society, but Christ would use Matthew to reach all the Jewish people. And more than that, if you look at Matthew's gospel, you and I will see that God so laid it and gave Matthew such a heart for the people of God and for the world, that Matthew would emphasize the might of the king in chapters 8 to 10 of his gospel record, that Christ has power over all sicknesses, but Christ has power over all spheres. And more than that, that Christ, he desires all people to hear from all backgrounds, the rich young ruler, the poor, the beggar, people of all ages, a demon-possessed boy, children, the little children suffer Christ said, them to come unto me. People from all over the earth. Matthew 16, 13 to 19. 
Christ desires all people. Matthew 28, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, all the nations. Somebody praying, Christ save this Matthew. Christ stepped in in the blink of an eye, sovereignly commanded Matthew, not merely with the outward call, but that with inward call, follow me. Matthew rose up. He left all with a new mind, a new heart, a new will. He followed Christ, and he had implanted in him a heart whereby he would serve Christ. Serve Christ in the short term. Serve Christ in the long term. Oh, dear child of God, don't give up praying for your loved ones. Not only is Christ able to save, able to change them, Christ is able to use them. Oh yeah, Christ is not going to make them an apostle like Matthew was. The apostle time is finished and done. But Christ can use them to love those who you will never get to reach. Christ can use them. Your prayers. The laws of the harvest is what you sow, you reap. But you always reap more than what you sow. And that's true for sin, but it's true for godliness. You sow prayers, you will reap more than you ever expect with that prayer whether you see it in time or eternity, you reap more than what you sow. Christ is willing to save sinners. It's wonderful that in verse 32, Christ says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. It doesn't say one type of sinner. It doesn't say two types of sinners. It doesn't say three types of sinners. It doesn't say sinners with these conditions. He just says, I came to call sinners. What's this mission all about? That Christ will call sinners. Did you note, whenever Christ had the lame man brought to him, did Christ reject him and throw him away? No. Whenever Matthew got his friends, his publicans, and the sinners to come, did Christ, was he ashamed to spend time with them? Was Christ ashamed to speak to them? No. Everybody that came to Christ, Christ changed. Christ was never ashamed to reject them or throw them away. I plead with you. Pray for God to step in to save souls. They may not seek Him, but you pray that He will seek them. That He will see them. The word for whenever it says that Christ saw Matthew or saw Levi, it's the most intense word of see. It's not merely seeing with a physical eye. not merely even seeing with a mind. It's seeing with the very heart and seeing His sin and His bondage and His misery. Pray, Lord, look at my loved one. Look in this town. Look in this area. See the misery. See the sin. See that which grieves thee. And Lord, save them. Change them. Show mercy. Show grace. Use them for your glory. Will we pray? Will we hope? Matthew's conversion. Powerful illustration of hope. Of who Christ our Savior is. Let's just bow in prayer. My gracious Lord and our Father in heaven, I do want to thank thee that thou hast given us thy precious word. Thank you, Father, that it reveals to us that Christ is not only an able Savior, willing to see a people like the Saul of Tarsus, willing to, people, willing to see a people like Matthew, who certainly were, was completely disinterested with Christ. Someone very possibly who had rejected Christ. And yet, Father, in wrath, thou didst remember mercy. And thy beloved son, he saw him in his misery, saw him in his sin, 
saw him in his bondage, saw him there in the clutches of Satan. And Christ, as the King of Kings, went in freedom. Lord, I beg of you, as you did there in the book of Exodus, as thou didst hear the cry of the children of Israel in bondage, there under Pharaoh's taskmasters, being beaten, imprisoned, Lord, thou didst hear their cry, and Lord, thou didst have compassion on them. And remembering your covenant to save, Father, you delivered them out, and you freed them unto the promised land. I beg of you, Father, that you would look upon the sinners in this area. Father, all the different types that there are, old ones and young ones, rich ones and poor ones. Lord, if they're sinners and they're lost, they have, they have no interest in thee. They are dead in their sins and trespasses. Father, they will not seek thee. But Lord, I beg of you that by the Spirit of God in this mission, and even the mission that's going on at the minute, Lord, I beg of you, please, come down and see us sinners. I beg of you, Lord, that you'd please come down and see us. Lord, that people would praise your name. Lord, we pray it for your glory. Lord, if there's any heart of any of us, and myself included, they'd be like, oh, wouldn't it be lovely to say that I was part of that? Oh, wouldn't it be lovely to say, you know, that it was because of me that some was saved? Lord, rid us of that, we beg of you. Lord, simply that people be changed from cursing your name neglecting your name to worshiping you. Lord, I beg of you, please look down upon this area and save souls. Give us as your people that desire, the friends of the lame man, to bring people to come and to hear the word. Lord, even in the Lord's days, Father, think of my own neighbors. Father, I beg of you, please, give me opportunities, give me grace, give me words to say that they will come in and hear of Christ, because Christ promises that he is here in the Lord's day, that he will walk among the candlesticks. Lord, let us desire to get people in the Lord's day, week after week, because Christ is here. And Lord, may Christ speak to them and change them. Come, Lord, give us such desire, give us such hope, give us such prayer, give us such practice. Forgive me, Lord, for many sins and failures in this area. Make me, Lord, to be like a Matthew. One Lord who's saved, but goes out and gets others to come to Christ. Oh, Lord, come, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.